Right, so thank you all for coming out this evening. Uh, there's many other things you could be doing today. So to see so many of you come out to hear about the Word of God is a fantastic thing for me. What this talk this evening, for about half an hour, represents is the final talk of three talks concerning the race for life. And our talk tonight is based around the Bible, which is a book that we as Christadelphians hold very dear, try to follow our lives and base our lives around it, and look to see about what it says about the future. And tonight's subject, The Ultimate Prize, is about the future. It's about the future of the earth, and it's about the future for you and me. What I'd like to do for a few moments to start with is just recap on some of the key messages that came out from talks number one and two on Tuesday and Wednesday. And then think more detailed about the subject that we've got for this evening, which talks about the prize. And for those of you who've been following the games, you'll understand that uh, the athletes, the swimmers, the cyclists are all exercising themselves to be able to win what they hope will be their gold medal. We're talking about exercising ourselves in the commandments of God. So that when the time comes that Jesus returns, which is a subject we'll be looking at through the course of this evening, we will also be a recipient of a prize, a prize from God. So we're going to recap first on the question, where is your life going? Then we're going to recap for a few moments on getting on the right track. In other words, understanding what it is that God wants of us. And then we'll detail more about the subject we've got for this evening, which is God's kingdom. So to recap on the first talk, where is your life going? And this is a very personal question for each and every one of us. And the key messages coming out from that talk on Tuesday was that we're all sinful. And that because of that nature that we have, that we share, we are all going to die. Now I'm stood in front of you as somebody talking about the Bible, but I put myself on no pedestal in respect of this. I am as sinful, if not more sinful, than anybody else in this room. What I hope we do this evening, though, is understand that even though we're all the same in that way as sinners, God promises each one of us something very special. And that prize, if we can call it that, is centred upon the Lord Jesus Christ, who was given for us. His sacrifice, and we may have a picture in our mind of him hanging upon a cross from art, that was done so that we have a hope and to demonstrate God's love for us. To demonstrate our need for salvation. And unfortunately, without God in our lives, without a proper understanding of why he gave his son, and also what he plans for the future, we risk following the wrong path in life and missing out on the wonderful prize that we're going to be looking at shortly. Talk two, which was yesterday, 
do excuse me. I wonder if somebody could act as the button presser for me. Thank you, Lindsay. Uh, if you could click right forward for me, please. Thank you. Talk two was about getting on the right track. And the talk last night was focused on two key issues that God invites us to do in our lives. The first is repent, and the second is baptism. And the Bible teaches us that both of these things, repentance and baptism, are essential for salvation. Thank you, Michael. Repentance, we're told in the Bible, is about seeking forgiveness, yes, but also turning our back on that previous behaviour that we regret, that we need forgiveness for, and trying to walk in a direction away from them. And baptism follows that repentance as a natural step. It's a demonstration, if you like, that you are committing yourself to living a life according to the life of Jesus. It represents a washing from sin. So when this individual here is going under the water, they are representationally being washed of their sins. And when they come out of the water, they're emerging as if it were from death. That's what we're being asked to consider by, dapt, by baptism. That the death that they've gone through by going under the water is a death to their old way of life. And that by coming out of the waters washed of sins, you're coming up into a new life. A new life focused upon Jesus. Being on the right track, therefore, involves understanding that without God, there is no hope. And that can be a very hard message for people to think about. It's common to hear people say, but I live a reasonably good life. I don't do really bad things. But what God wants us to do is consider what he is saying to us and be motivated by those words and our understanding. Being on the right track, therefore, means discarding our old way of life. I mentioned earlier that I am am still a sinful person. But what I try to do, and this is all what God asks us to do, is to turn our back on the things that we struggle with as sins in our life. And to choose instead a new way of life based on the example of Jesus. Based on loving God first and foremost. Getting to understand who God is and what he promises. And then looking around at the people around us, whether it be in the family circumstance, in the work circumstance or in the wider societal context, trying to show God's love that we have each received to them. And at the bottom of the priority pile, as it were, is ourselves. Jesus sacrificed himself for us. And we are asked to do the same in our lives. And we're asked to continue in the hope of the resurrection. In the baptism that we looked at earlier, the person was coming out of the water to a new life. And that represents resurrection. That is precisely One of the promises that God makes to people who are faithful and have died. 
And it's a promise that God makes to us. Being on the right track therefore involves seeking God and looking looking forward to the fulfilment of his promises. And the promise that God makes to us is centred on this one word. I keep forgetting to press this button, I do apologise. It's centred on this word, kingdom. Because one of the promises that God makes is that there will be a righteous king who rules over the whole earth. And what this topic we're going to look at now together is, is the question, why should we believe this kingdom is going to happen? We'll answer that question in a few slides, but what I'd like us first to do is understand a little bit about Bible history. And there's only one slide, it's not intended to be complicated, but hopefully you can see 4000 BC or beyond, we understand from the Bible that God made everything, including ourselves. That God made man from the dust of the earth and formed him into a physical being and breathed the breath of life into him. Then if we jump forward to 2000 years BC, so roughly... 4,000 years ago, if my mental arithmetic is correct, 4,000 years ago, we had a founding figure in the Bible. comes up in Genesis. And he's an individual we're going to look at as to what promises were made to him and how they relate to this subject we're thinking about this evening of the kingdom and the prize. We're also going to look at one of the very first kings of Israel, King David, who also had promises made to him about a king that was to come and that king would rule forever. Then we're going to look at some of the words of Daniel who lived around 500 BC. Then some of the words of Jesus who, as we know, lived around the year zero to about the year 33. And then we're going to think about the question of us and now. As to what our understanding tells us we need to do and that we need to think about. Recognising that shortly, in our understanding of the Bible, we're at 2000 odd AD. This red section indicates a time period that is yet to come, but that we believe is short before the Lord Jesus Christ will return from heaven to reign as king over the whole earth, from the earth, centred in Jerusalem. So having given that brief Bible history, we're going to look at the context of this man, Abraham. Now, Abraham lived in Ur of the Chaldees. If you don't know your ancient history, that's part of what is now modern Bab- um, Iraq. And he was leading, presumably, an innocuous life like all of us, when God spoke to him and said, Leave this country and come to a land that I will show you. At this time, Abraham was old. I like to think of myself as young, I'm 46, but Abraham at this point was far older than even me. And he was, he was childless. He was old, and his wife was equally old. But what he was promised was that out of him would come a great nation. More than that, an innumerable number of people. 
And what we understand is that Abraham became the father of what is now modern day Israel and also many of the peoples of the Middle East. And God said, I'm going to make your offspring huge in number. And I'm going to bless you, Abraham. And I'm going to give you the land which I've just taken you to. And it's going to be your possession. Not just temporarily, but everlasting. My covenant, God says, he would establish with the son that would be born to him, Isaac. And he says, in thy seed, in thy son, because it's a singular word that's used there, in your son, all nations of the earth will be blessed. So we have two key concepts coming out here. The first is that Abraham would inherit this land that he was now living in, in tents, and it would be his, not for the lifetime that he was living at that point, because he's clearly long dead, but that he would have it at a time in the future. And it would be his at the return, I would suggest, of this person that is described as the seed. We'll jump forward in time, roughly a thousand years, to the second king of Israel, to King David. David, many of us may know, was the slayer of that giant Goliath, as a simple shepherd boy. But shortly after that, he was promised that he would become, become king. And Matthew, the first of the Gospels, describes David as being a direct descendant of Abraham. And a direct um, precursor, if you like, in chronology, in family tree, to Jesus. So we understand that Jesus was the son of David through many generations apart, but that he was also the offspring, Jesus was, of Abraham. And he wished to build a temple for God to live in, for people to meet and worship. But he was given a promise that instead of you, David, building me, God, a temple, I'm going to build you a house, David, God said. And this is how he describes it. When your days, God says to David, are fulfilled and you sleep with your fathers, by which we understand you're going to die, I will set up a seed after you and I will establish his kingdom. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So here we have a tie-in with the previous slide which talked about the promise to Abraham about everlasting. Here we have the idea again of a kingdom being established forever. And that continues later on to say that Christ, Jesus, would be the person to sit upon that throne. And that's a passage from Acts, which picks up on this promise to David and helps us understand it better. So we've got the promise to Abraham about an everlasting possession of the land of modern day Israel. We've got a promise to David of a kingdom that would last forever. And we've got the interpretation from the New Testament saying that the king who will reign forever is this man, Jesus. We're now going to jump forward another 500 years in time. And this is to the time of 
the Babylonian Empire, which is around the year 500 BC, there or thereabouts. And at this time, the ruler of this empire was a man called Nebuchadnezzar. And he was asleep, we're told, in the book of Daniel one night, and he had a vision, a dream, you and I might say. And the dream was of a huge statue where the head was of gold, the arms and the chest were of silver, the belly and thighs of brass, the legs of iron, and the feet of iron and clay. And what Daniel was led to understand by God instructing him in this dream was that it was a prophecy about what would come to pass through history from that moment 500 years BC or thereabouts to the end. And what Daniel interpreted through God, this dream was to say that there would be many empires that would come and go over the land of what we now understand to be Israel and the wider Middle East. The first of which is Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, that's you. Then after Babylon was going to come Persia and the Medes, then the Greeks, then the Romans, until today, where there's a mixed kind of authority over the land of Israel and over that area of the Middle East. Okay? Daniel later, after Nebuchadnezzar is off the scene, has a dream himself. And the dream he has is of four beasts. Now you'll notice the first beast, hopefully if I move away from the mic you can all hear me still, the first beast is a lion, a leopard, a bear, and then this unusual beast that doesn't reflect anything in nature truly. But you'll notice, even though they're based on animals that we can see in God's animal kingdom, they're different. Because the lion, you'll notice, has got wings. The leopard had four heads. The bear had ribs growing out of its mouth. And the final beast is something that you know, artists have tried to depict. I'm not sure if that's what Daniel actually saw, the red beast. But it's another picture that Daniel was told about the empires that would come. He had it, this dream, at the time of Belshazzar, who was the last of the kings over Babylon, just before the Medes and Persians took control. And he said, these are four great beasts, and they represent four kings, four empires, which shall arise out of the earth and take control over what Babylon was currently in control of. And so we've got a carry-on picture of Persia, Greece, Rome and modern day depicted in these animals that were in the dream of Daniel. And to give Daniel confidence that what he was being told would come to pass, he was given another very special vision which was interpreted precisely. This is a few years after this dream, just a couple of years later, Daniel had a further dream. I don't know if we can make out the graphic, but we have a, 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 a ram lying on its side, being beaten to a pulp, using the modern vernacular, by a goat. And the dream that Daniel had was that the, that the, um, the ram uh, was the Greek kings and that the per sorry that the ram was the persian kings and that the greeks would come and totally destroy that persian empire now you might say well understanding that 
the Medes and Persians were going to take control, given that it was only a few years before they vanquished Babylon, that's not such a great step. We could understand ourselves looking at history, looking at the future, what might happen in the world. What's different about this is that it talks about the Greeks taking control hundreds of years later. And going back briefly, if we can, to that first dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. If you remember, it was about the statue representing man's control over the earth, and in particular over the Middle East. What we find is these words. In the days of these kings, which is the last days, shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom. So this isn't a man-made kingdom. This is a kingdom that God will set up. And it's described that this kingdom would never be destroyed and it would break in pieces and consume all the kingdoms that have come before it and it shall stand forever. So this is tying in again with the words to Abraham and to David about a kingship that would be an enduring and everlasting kingship. And in the final part of the dream, it's not with me today, is it? I'll try this again. Thank you. It wasn't coming and I just wasn't seeing it. <laughs> okay. In the final part of the dream, Daniel, uh, sorry, Nebuchadnezzar saw a stone that suddenly came out of nowhere and smashed the foot of this statue in his dream and ground it to powder. And that is precisely what um, is described as being the start of the kingdom of Christ. The idea that, God, that Jesus will come to the earth, establish this eternal kingdom, but will ultimately have to subdue everything that currently exists in the national structures. We're going to jump roughly to the same time now to another man who was around the same time as Daniel a man called Ezekiel and at the height of the Babylonian Empire Ezekiel prophesied of the regathering of the nation of Israel remember at this time Israel had been removed from the land that we now know as Israel and was in captivity up in Babylon and that the subsequent empires who took control of the Middle East spread the Jews further and further afield a global diaspora if you like what Ezekiel saw in his visions was a regathering of the nation of Israel. And Jesus picks up on this in the New Testament. 2,000 years ago, Jesus said, Learn a parable of the fig tree. When his branch is yet tender and putteth forth his leaves, ye know that summer is near. And we can understand that. We're just emerging through the summer. We know that in spring the leaves start to come forth. What Jesus is saying is, just as the trees do that, understand that if you look at the fig tree, which is a representation of the nation of Israel, when that starts to grow and become alive again, know that it is near. And it, in this context, is his return as king. He says earlier in the same prophecy, they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and with great glory. And that is what we are looking forward to. That is part of the prize that God extends to each and every one of us. That Jesus will return to establish 
that kingdom that has been talked about through the scriptures right from the beginning in Genesis. But it wasn't an isolated message of Jesus, this idea of the kingdom about his return. Jesus talked extensively before his crucifixion about the kingdom of heaven. He used parables to describe the kingdom of heaven. He said the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. It's like ten wise virgins. It's like sheep and goats that need to be separated. The kingdom was a constant message of Jesus. And if we think simply just about how Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. Now, you may think, well, I've said those words for ages past and never really perhaps thought about them or never really understand them. Hopefully you're beginning to see the picture that the kingdom come that Jesus talks about in this model prayer is about him returning, having been crucified, and in heaven now with God, returning to the earth to take up rulership. Other Bible passages from the New and the Old Testament, and these are just a small selection, talk about the kingdom. Paul talks about the prize that he was looking forward to when he wrote to the Philippians. He said, henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which will give him to me, Paul, and to the people who love him when he comes, at his appearing. So there's an implicit, a clear message there that Jesus is going to come back. In the Thessalonians letter, Paul writes, the Lord Jesus himself will descend from heaven. It's not us that's going to go up to meet with him. It's Jesus that will descend to meet with us. And as Zechariah says right at the end of Zechariah, that Jesus will be king over the whole earth. So with those thoughts in mind about the kingdom... It's worth thinking for a brief moment about some of the problems the world has. I'll let you read through that list yourself. But hopefully you see some of these things. Maybe you've not understood what a fire nado is. I saw a clip on the news last night about a fire down in Devon being sucked up through a tornado hundreds of feet into the air. Quite a marvellous sight, but equally very distressing to see. What Jesus in that same prophecy that we just looked at talked about was distress of nations. He talked about men's hearts failing them for fear. And then he talked about at that time they shall see the Son of Man, i.e. Jesus, coming with power and with great glory. That ties in with words that Daniel wrote 500 years before Jesus was on the earth. He wrote, there will be a time of trouble. Thy, thy people, though, will be delivered. So yes, there are these troubles that we see in the world. But the promise that God makes of his kingdom will do away, I would suggest, with these problems. And that's what we're going to look at next in terms of the fundamental principles of kingdom life. Think about it, God created the earth as we understand from the Bible. And he put man on the earth with his wife to inhabit it, to be, proof, to be fruitful. But since that time, man has constantly striven against each other. 
What God promises, though, in the kingdom age is that there will be no more war, there will be no more destruction. He says through Isaiah, They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in words to Isaiah, we read these in the Bible. They, that is the people in the future age of the kingdom, shall beat their swords into plowshares or into agricultural implements. And their spears they shall make into more agricultural implements. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Now clearly we're at a time where technology is such that to go into war with a spear would be disastrous. But it's the principle of what God is talking about. The idea that the weapons that we look at and that we can see in video footage on television will no more be. Will no more be causing death. Because there will be a king over the earth who will be leading righteously. Another problem with the earth, I would suggest, not so much so in our, in our nation, thankfully, but is of corrupt governments and corrupt leaderships. What God promises to you and I is that he will install a new kind of government, one based on righteousness. He says these words through the psalmist, Give, thy, give the king thy judgments, O God, and thy righteousness unto the king's son. He shall judge thy people, not in a bad way, but with righteousness, and thy poor with judgment. Now I've just walked through the streets of Glasgow and seen poverty. Poverty, I would suggest, is going to be a thing of the past when the kingdom is established. And that brings us to the next slide. One of the most horrific images that I see on television is of children suffering. And this is a, 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 a picture of a young child with a distended stomach through malnutrition and famine. The earth has enough to feed. There's enough to go around. But we're all selfish. That's part of our nature. And because of that, that's why these problems exist. But God says, through the psalmist again... There shall be a handful of corn, not just upon the plains where you'd expect to see grain growing, but there'll be a handful of corns upon the very tops of the mountains. What God is promising is a, a planet that is capable of providing food for everybody. God also talks about religion. Now religion is a key thing in the modern world that is divisive. People have different views. It has led in the past, in the Christian period, if I can use that term, to wars. We even sent, as the, the, the Brits, we even sent crusaders to Jerusalem to rout the Jews because what they had done uh, to Jesus. There's also wars within the Muslim territories. And there's wars because of other religions. What God says, though, is that that's going to be a thing of the past. That division by religion will no more be. Because he will establish a correct way. And that all nations of the earth shall flow to it, that is Jerusalem, to learn about how God wants us to live. And the earth, as we read earlier, shall 
It's not a maybe. Shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now I'd say to you that most people understand the concept of God. But very few believe and even fewer still are motivated to do something about it. So I have to say it's fantastic you've all made it out this evening to think about what the prize is that God extends to us. God promises that the earth isn't going to be destroyed. I'm an environmental professional by training and by career. And I look at all the problems that are occurring, whether it be plastics in the ocean, climate change, El Nino effects. I see all these things, but I have confidence that God isn't going to allow the earth to be destroyed because he said he created it. And he didn't create it in vain because he made it to be lived in, to be inhabited. But the pollution problems that we see now, and maybe it's a job that I'll be involved in in that kingdom age, will be a purified planet. Which brings us to a circle, to bring us to think about ourselves and our personal considerations. To my mind, and hopefully I've demonstrated part of it tonight, the Bible is clear in its message. The kingdom of heaven is to be on earth and will be ruled by Jesus following God's principles. And that those who have exercised themselves in a life following Jesus will be rewarded firstly for their faith, but also for how they've changed their lives in response. And the reward, the prize that we're encouraged to think about, that God holds out to each and every one of us, is, but is brought up in this God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Now he gave his only begotten son as that sacrifice to help us realise we need help. But he's also going to give us his son as our king in the, what I believe will be the very near future. That we might be saved. Just a couple more slides. The final prophecy of the Bible comes in Revelation. And what it promises is a picture that ties in with some of the problems that we've thought about that are there with this world at the moment. And what God says is that he himself will wipe away tears from the eyes of the world. There'll be no more death. There'll be no more sorrow. No more crying. And neither will there be any more pain. Because these things are going to be a thing of history. They're going to be passed away because the new king will have come. Our final slide is really to emphasise to you, having thought about the establishment of Israel as that fig tree, and Israel was established as a nation in 1947-48. Now to, you, to me, as a 46-year-old, that's before my time. But it's certainly within the lives of some of us who are alive today. What Jesus said is that when you see the fig tree Israel flourish, know that the time is at hand. And that time ties in with our message that we're going to end on. Where Jesus, in giving his prophecies, his words to John through a revelation, said four times. So it's not a mis-error, it's, it's not an error, it's not a misprint, it's a clear message. He said, I am coming soon. 
I'm coming soon. I am coming soon. And he used that parable of the fig tree, Israel being re-established from the diaspora over two and a half thousand years, as a warning, as a message. When that happens, start to make yourself ready, because I am coming soon. Hopefully, our thoughts this evening have been of interest to you. What I'm delighted to say is that we'd be delighted to carry on chatting with you afterwards. I personally would be happy to answer any questions. But if you notice there are a number of purple t-shirted individuals in the room, they would equally be happy to chat to anybody who's got questions. I'm also really pleased to advise that in Glasgow there are four of our churches which we call ecclesias. And every Sunday and every Wednesday or Tuesday, depending on the venue, we have Bible classes, which start to talk more about what God's promises are and help us understand the Bible. And there's also, starting on Wednesday the 5th, a series of seminars that are going to be held here in this room at 12.30 every Wednesday, consecutive weeks through September, which help, hopefully, aim to, aim to help to understand how to read the Bible for yourselves. Because that is ultimately what our hope is. Not that you listen to people like me, but that you pick up this wonderful book for yourself and challenge people like me on what we've talked about and come to understand it for yourselves. So thank you very much once again for your time and your careful consideration. And uh, I hope you enjoy talking and looking around the exhibition. Thank you. <laughs>